you simply cannot do all of this at this speed without knowing fully that we're going to have some horrific unintended consequences and what sit on a podcast in five years and we're like yeah we should have seen this coming in 2023 like we can't do it again welcome to politicology i'm ron steslow and earlier this year i was at liz gilbert cohen's wedding talking to a friend Geraldine Dreyfus, about the many ways our institutions we've relied on for accurate and truthful information seem to have failed to live up to the trust we've traditionally placed in them. And that seems to have contributed to the broad erosion of trust in institutions we've talked a lot about here. The context for the conversation was public health information, uh, after which my friend promptly introduced me to Claire Wardle, one of the most fascinating people in this field and an expert in what we'll call for now information pollution. And when Claire and I spoke on the phone, it was clear to me we needed to move the conversation to politicology. So today, we're going to discuss terms like misinformation and disinformation and their limitations, how Claire sees the information landscape, and how we can stay thoughtful and engaged citizens in an age of information pollution. Claire is a co-founder and co-director of the Information Futures Lab and a professor of the practice at the Brown School of Public Health. In 2015, Claire co-founded the nonprofit First Draft, a pioneer in innovation research and practice in the field of misinformation. She's developed training for the BBC on eyewitness media, verification, and misinformation. She led social media policy at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and was a fellow at the Shorenstein Center for Media Politics and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School and a research director at the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. She also holds a PhD in communication from the University of Pennsylvania. And in case you were keeping track, she's also lectured at Cornell, so she's attended or taught at five-eighths of the Ivy League. Claire, welcome to Politicology. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. So before we dive in here, um, why don't you um, maybe give a little bit more of your potted bio, talk about your background and what led you to the research in information disorder so people have a good sense of where you're coming from? Yeah, so I graduated from Penn in 2004, left in a taxi crying because I loved the city so much, but I was returning to Europe for a job and I taught at Cardiff University for five years. And in that time, you're sort of a junior faculty and you're trying to figure out your next project. And I was becoming increasingly interested in the people who were sending text messages and emails into news organizations. And I was like, how does BBC Breakfast know whether that sun, sunset really is real? Like I was just kind of obsessed with this question. Um, and then, you know, you remember we had uh, the 7-7 bombings in July 2005, and it was the first time the BBC led with any footage that had not been filmed by a BBC camera because somebody was down in the tube and they didn't have an iPhone. This was two years before the iPhone. And it was starting to become a question about the ethics of using citizen content. But there was all these questions about it. And then um, I did a big piece of work for the BBC and thought, oh, nobody will read it other than my mom and it will just be one of those academic things. But somebody at the BBC said, well, this is interesting. Can you come and help us? And very soon after, that plane landed in the Hudson River. Now, probably many of your listeners can remember that. If you don't, you might have watched the Tom Hanks movie. But at the time, the head of BBC News Gathering called me and said, hey, I hear you're the Twitter lady. None of my journalists know what Twitter is. This was January 2009. None of my journalists found that image of the passengers on the plane that had been tweeted by this Dutch guy called Janice Crumbs. He had 60 followers and he basically said, crazy, like off to pick up the passengers because they were on a ferry that went to the plane. And so this head of news gathering said, we couldn't find that image on Twitter. 
If we did, we didn't know how to verify it. And if we had verified it, we didn't know whether we could use it ethically or legally. Can you leave your nice job as an academic and come and I can give you 50 days, like kind of hustling. And to, to my poor mum's horror, I was like, okay. And I kind of said, look, I can always come back to the academy, but I'm never going to get this opportunity again. So it started this amazing kind of 10-year journey of working with different news organizations around the world, the UN, different like government agencies, saying like, how do you tell what's true on the internet? You're increasingly finding content online. How do you know what's true? And I spent a year with a startup in Dublin, right at the height of the Syrian conflict, when we would have evidence of chemical weapons attack, but only on YouTube, no journalists on the ground, all we had. And we were basically coming up with methods for how do you do forensic analysis of content online. And in fact, many of those people were working on the leak this weekend around Discord and were doing verification of that material, cross-referencing with countertops. Like it's the same methodology, but we were coming up with that methodology of like, how do you do this? How do you do this if you're the International Criminal Court? So my weird niche, how do you tell what's true on the internet in 2005, <laughs> became a thing that many other people have become interested in. So I often pinch myself. I mean, even though it's awful and the world is in a bad place, it's kind of bonkers that the thing that I was like weirdly interested in has become this national obsession. But I've also watched, you know, back in you know 2005 with the BBC, they might get hoaxed two or three times a year. You know, there were some classic hoaxers that would call up and pretend to be, and they were like, should we put them on air? But that was misinformation back in 2005. That, you know, we have 26,000 examples of that every, I mean, that's a made up number, but you know, the, the scale is kind of unbelievable when we, when we realize how short this period has been, basically two decades. So over the last few years, we've seen a huge jump in the terms like misinformation and disinformation and malinformation. And this was one of the first things that you seized on when we first talked, because I didn't use those terms. I think I said information landscape and your eyebrows went up and I said, oh, this means something to you. Can you talk about the limitations of those terms and why, why, what you see as, as difficult or useless uh, about these terms now and why you prefer to use terms like the information landscape? Back in basically 2017, which was the first time that President Trump at the time stood at the podium and called Dan Acosta of CNN fake news. And that was the first time that we really saw that term used. And I, at the time, as somebody who had done a lot of this work, kept saying, well, a lot of this content actually isn't fake. It's genuine content used out of context. And a lot of it doesn't even look like news. And that's before we get to the point that this isn't just Trump, it's politicians right around the world attacking a free and independent media that we need more than anybody else. So I sort of famously would go on conference stages and like, oh, we shouldn't use the term F asterisk, asterisk, asterisk news, which I now cringe at. But I was trying to make the point that it was a really unhelpful and actually dangerous term. So then I wrote this report in 2017 because everybody kept saying, well, if I can't use the term fake news, Claire, what can I use? And I was like, oh, we need to come up with something new. So I, I co-wrote a, a piece um, around this term information disorder that we kind of came up with as like, maybe this is a catch-all term hasn't caught on, but anyway. Um, and within it, we kind of came up with this typology of mis, dis, and mal information. So I'm sure many people know this, disinformation, deliberately created information shared to cause harm, misinformation, my mum not realizing it's wrong and not meaning any harm when she shares it. And then mal information, which was a term we coined to say genuine information shared to cause harm. So that might be a leak. If it's not in the public interest, it might be revenge porn. Um, and it was a very nice, tidy framework that looked lovely when people designed it and I would, you know, publish it and it got translated and everyone was like, oh, Claire, what a great typology. And so the reason that my eyebrows went up is because in the last couple of years, I've been like, oh, 
I got it wrong. Like I, I made everybody get focused on being more specific, but it was still not specific enough to describe the complexities of the information landscape. And so I, I now get asked all the time to talk about definitions and I'm kind of having to get up on conference stages now and be like, I was wrong. And I want us to think differently about it. But I think that's just, this was a new issue with, we're working it out. And I think often we leap on definitions because it makes us feel safe. It makes us feel that things are simple, but that's what the conspiracy theorists do. Like that, like a simple explanation is what a conspiracy theory is. And we as academics and journalists, we wanted the same nice, neat definition and diagram to make us feel better about something that's really messy and complex. Especially in an extremely fast moving environment, like a newsroom where you need to make snap decisions about things, you need a tool set that allows you to do that very quickly. So you can understand, uh, you know, the desire for simplicity, but, um, but the desire doesn't make it real. Can you explain what we miss when we focus on individual pieces of problematic content as you, I'm putting that in air quotes, problematic content? Well, just to go back quickly about why people also love the definition is because if you work at a platform, you kind of want a boundary that you can say, oh, that's content that we can take down. That's content that we can leave up. If I'm a regulator, I want somebody to tell me what the definition is so that I can do that. If I'm a researcher, I want to say, well, what's in my database and what's out? So it's completely understandable why people want this because this content is legal speech. So that's the challenge we have with this. Terrorist-related content, child sexual abuse imagery, that is illegal content and we can all agree with it. A lot of the content that you know me and my team see every day is absolutely in that gray area. So that's partly, and I'm sure we'll talk more about why the definitions are unhelpful, but I will argue it also by focusing on mis, dis, and mal information is that people go, Claire, this YouTube video, what's this? This tweet, what's that? Should we label this tweet? Should we take down that YouTube video? So the definitions have forced us to think, I call them atoms of content at that level. And so then we end up playing whack-a-mole with these individual atoms of content as if you seeing that one tweet is going to change your behavior. But if we label it or we take it down or we throttle it in the algorithm, it's going to improve things. And what we've missed, I would argue, is that we haven't zoomed out to understand how those atoms are connected to create narratives or to create ways of seeing. But that's harder from a policy level or a platform level. People can do things with things like atoms, like posts. It's much harder to be like, oh, narratives, you say, lady. Okay. Like it, we don't know what to do with that. So we've gone to the smallest, you know, um, denominator. And on the other side of that problem of the mis, mal, and disinformation labels are the people who believe they're engaging in perfectly legitimate speech. And then when those things are taken down, oftentimes they're taken down and there's not a lot of explanation as to why. They think that what they've said is is genuine. They've been asking genuine questions. They believe that what they've shared is is uh, worthy of of other people giving feedback on. Can you talk a little bit about how you see, and we won't spend a ton of time on this, but it's it was actually the genesis of the conversation with Gerilyn because I was concerned that the the failure of institutions, and maybe we can talk about you know the the the, the how they haven't kept up with um, the changing science, for example, in the case of the CDC, or messaged about public health in an, in an accurate and honest way. And when we when we got something wrong because the science pointed one direction and then it changed, and then we didn't actually explain, hey, we got it wrong. That has created a lot of distrust, and I think it's created a lot of animosity uh, among a lot of otherwise well-meaning people who have now been labeled misinformation spreaders or disinformation spreaders or conspiracy theorists for simply 
asking questions or, and I'm not talking about the disingenuous, just asking questions crowd. I'm talking about the, um, the people who are genuinely searching for truth and information. And I wonder how you see the other side of this equation too, before we move on. Well, it kind of goes back to those definitions because it looks so neat, which is like, oh, disinformation is people deliberately creating content because they want to cause harm. But misinformation, we kept talking, I say we, like people in this field as if it's, oh, and I say a lot and it's a kind of a joke and it's kind of a nod to my mom. But like, you know, she doesn't realize she forgot to check and she shares it and she doesn't mean any harm. And we all went, oh yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. But I remember back in the spring of 2019 when we had a measles outbreak, this was before COVID. I remember spending some time in some Instagram communities, anti-vax communities, and I found an image of a woman and she's wearing a t-shirt with the words INFORMED in capital letters across her t-shirt. And she's holding this huge binder of academic research. And she's basically making the point that it's vaccines that cause harm and it's her role to prevent harm by sharing this information. Now, she's not somebody who's been duped by conspiracy theories. She's reading academic research. She's drawing different um, conclusions than I would. But her worldview is that vaccines cause harm and she is the one who's preventing harm. And I looked at this, I was like, well, where does she fit in my framework? She doesn't fit at all because she's not a disinformation agent deliberately trying to cause harm. And then, of course, January 6th happened and I watched those people marauding through the rotunda with their flags. And, at, and we know this from reading a lot of the legal documents now is that they truly believe that they were saving democracy, that they were protecting the Constitution. And they hadn't just watched a couple of YouTube videos. They were in a whole information environment, information landscape, where everywhere they looked from around the dinner table to down the pub, down the golf club, their president, talk show radio, everywhere they went, everybody was saying the same thing about the election being stolen. I was like, well, where do I put those people? They don't fit into my framework. So this point of intent, from an academic perspective, we like, they intend to cause harm. Well, who's making that decision? And so intent has always been difficult to investigate. But I think it also comes from a really damaging perspective around, we know what truth is, you don't. We know what harm is, you don't. It doesn't get at any of the dynamics that are really, you know, pushing this content through our information landscape. You know, again, we tend to study platforms. We don't understand how it flows. And so to all of those reasons, I think all of us, if we stopped and thought about it, we're actually causing so much additional, um, not to use the word harm again, but to your point, I mean, I did a research study where we, it was a diary study watching people as they essentially looked at flags on Facebook. The kind of fact checkers have said this is wrong. And it will not surprise you that people on the left were like, they A, hardly saw any flags. And when they did see a flag, they were like, thank goodness for the fact checkers. I'm glad that I'm now informed. Anybody on the right was like, oh, how dare those fact checkers do this to me? Blah, blah. And actually it would make them so angry. They'd often go off and do their research. And in some occasions they were right. The fact checkers often because the fact checkers would do one work and then the Facebook algorithm would match it and screwed up. But what that did was made people so angry and trust was just exploding around them. And I was like, this is so damaging. So I think our failure, again, to understand the complexity of all of this meant there was this rush in 2017, 2018, all this money came into this field, all these initiatives started, but we didn't stop and say, what are the unintended consequences of some of these initiatives? The irony here, like we were trying to, that we say that about the platforms, but I would say civil society researchers, we did some stuff that we didn't understand what this meant in a really complex, messy information environment. And these nice, sweet typologies that academics were creating was not even touching the sides in terms of really helping us understand what was going on there. In one sense, it was a, 
noble effort to do what we could to try and curb real harms in the real world. And also, in another sense, it's an experiment of epic proportions uh, executed on live public discourse. And both of those things are true. Um, you, this might be an extension of the same question, but you framed this work with Alice Marwick that shows that within a social environment, people aren't necessarily trying to inform others. They're sharing stories to express themselves and broadcast their identity. So how does that concept shape how you think about information disorder? So if we go back to an example of maybe, you know, an anti-vaxxer, like there is an identity there that they are performing every single day. And whilst it's easy to focus on that, all of us are doing that every day. All of us make decisions about what article am I going to share with my so-called audience? Even if you have 400 followers or 10,000 followers in your head, you're thinking about, oh yeah, what's Brian, Sharon, and you know, Claire going to think? Like yeah. we kind of have that That's imaginary right. audience. Yeah. Before you and hit so the post all... button, you, you call up a couple of specific people. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you always like, oh, are they going to, I bet they're going to comment. You know, we kind of have this right. sense of that. And so what I don't think we do enough of saying, when people are sharing information, it's not because it's factually accurate. You know, I say this all the time. You know, if I read a really good BBC article, I really have feelings about that BBC article. I'm like, oh, interesting. <laughs> but it's, if I share, it's not really giving me an identity other than like, here's a potentially somewhat interesting article, but you're probably not going to feel anything. I'm much more likely to share the op-ed. I'm much more likely to share a thing that I feel something and I think other people might feel it. But I'm also have an identity. And this happens on both the left and the right. You know, if you're an Obama supporter and you're scrolling through, you know, Facebook and you see an article that suggests that Obama actually deported more, you know, people than, you know, Trump. Even if that's true, you do not want to read it because that is going to challenge your worldview and your perception of somebody you support. Now, that doesn't mean that you're disagreeing with it, but you're not, you're going to skip over it. And the platforms say this all the time, like they try and put stuff into our feeds that will open up the echo chamber. Turns out we just skip over the stuff that we don't want to see. But that gets to the idea, like we all have our worldviews and we consume information that reinforces that worldview and we share information that reinforces that worldview. And that is the same for us as it is an anti-vaxxer, as it is for somebody who supports QAnon. We are all playing out these identities performances it's a it's a ritualistic you know when we get up in the morning we scroll and we post and like there's so much of that to this that is nowhere to be seen when people talk about we just need more facts because that yeah. makes us feel better because again journalists researchers we feel uncomfortable about emotions we feel uncomfortable mm. about feelings mm. but you know who's really good at that stuff those who <laughs> spend time in the disinformation ecosystem so we can't yeah. we have to recognize that that we are having those relationships with information every day Okay, so just to close out this thread then, how, how can that framing uh, help our listeners change how they approach uh, inaccurate information online? How can they change the way they read and interpret what they're reading online? Do you have any good habits? I guess it's probably important to note that the, the phenomenon you're talking about has neurobiological causes also, uh, roots, right? So this is not just a, uh, a personality trait. This is actually right, intrinsic to your biology and, and all the way back to your, uh, your lizard brain, shall we say. Um, so what tips do you give people for changing their, their relationship with information they're consuming online and how they're interacting with it? It's all about recognizing your emotional response to information. So I just kind of made a little bit of a joke about not feeling anything around the BBC. Yeah. But I also know when I do feel something and sometimes that feeling is superiority. Like I told you so, like that is a feeling. 
And when you are having that fear, or, oh, I really, I really feel I need to buy that because I think that's going to solve my problems. Like you are feeling something. It's giving you a sense of like agency and I'm going to do something. And if it makes you feel angry or it makes you feel scared, I mean, they're the ones that we know this from the lab. You put people in a lab and you say, can you, you know, look at this and decide whether it's not as true or false. People are really good at it in a lab. <laughs> like for the most part, all of us are pretty good at it. We're really bad at it when it is content that drives our emotional responses or we're busy or overwhelmed swiping whilst we're waiting for coffee. Like all of those things take our abilities and make them less, you know, mm. less effective. So the one thing I say to people is like, not, oh, only read the AP or only do this or like consume all the stuff. You know, I actually think it is important to consume all the stuff because there is no source that's going to get it all right. And you only really mm. understand the dynamics of anything by understanding all the different ways it's being framed. But I would say when you're doing that, you're going to figure out that some of the coverage makes you feel really, really mad. And some of you makes you feel really, really superior. <laughs> and yeah. in all of those ways, and, and what I say to people is like, are you the best person to share this? And we saw this at the beginning of the, of the pandemic. Suddenly everybody had a medium post and everybody was an epidemiologist. Like, really? Or like everybody's <laughs> the, you know, the expert on Ukraine and you live in freaking Minnesota. Like yeah. we have to just say, are you the best person to share this? And I know the platforms don't want to hear this, but we could have significantly less sharing and we'd still have a healthy democracy. What our problem is, is that everybody feels that they should be sharing. And a lot of what we're sharing is not helpful or it's wrong. And actually, if we just stayed in our lanes, we'd be better off. But that's, I mean, that's a much bigger ask of people because we're performing. Yeah, that the yeah, drive right. is performance. So that's, yeah. we can't unplug that part of our brains. And extension or expression of our identity, it's harder to, yeah, big ask. Let's talk about silos. Um, can you give us a sense of the landscape of, uh, let's call it misinformation research? I'm not sure what terms you actually use when you, th when you think about this research, but we'll call it misinformation research. How are, how are scholars studying uh, misinformation in their fields. What does crossover look like for the research? Can you give us a sense of the, you know, what the landscape looks like? Probably won't surprise anybody that <laughs> the silos that impact everybody's workplace, that impact everybody's community, it's the same thing. And I think as somebody who's been doing this work for a long time, it's really difficult to watch how siloed it is. And ultimately, you know, it's not as if 2016 was the first time that everybody realized misinformation was a problem. If you spend any time in other parts of the world, Science and health misinformation was a huge problem around Ebola, HIV, cancer cures, you know. So you'd go to conferences in the US after the Trump election and people were like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. But it was all about political disinformation on Facebook. I'm like, well, you know, the biggest problem is health and science misinformation on WhatsApp globally. No, but political disinformation on Facebook, Claire, like that's the thing we have to sort out. So of course, all this money got pumped in, particularly in the US context, specifically looking at political disinformation with kind of an eye to foreign interference. And all of that was completely understandable. And then COVID came along and everyone was like, oh, stop, we've got a problem, people, with misinformation. Political disinformation. No, no, health misinformation. Well, if you read all of the literature and all the learnings and you have all the initiatives around political disinformation that everybody spent five years doing, no, 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 I'll tell you what the problem is. And of course, it was just like everybody starting from scratch. Now we have the exact same happening around climate. When I was like, I'll tell you what the problem is with no awareness, because of course, everybody's publishing in their own journals. Nobody reads anybody else's journals if they read journals at all. And the, for want of a better word, the other side, they don't sit in their silos. They are merrily sharing tactics, recruiting across sites. I mean, they, they are the most coordinated, collaborative, cohesive bunch of people I've ever seen. 
And they don't look for these events. So if I'm a funder, I'm like, oh, Kenyan election's coming up. Let's fund civil society for just 12 weeks before the Kenyan election. <laughs> then we'll stop on election day because then misinformation <laughs> will stop. And then we'll move to Nigeria and then we'll move to Brazil. And then, Or, oh my goodness, there's a pandemic. Let's fund around the pandemic. If I'm a bad actor, I'm like, oh, what about that Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial, people? That feels like an opportunity where there's going to be a lot of eyeballs. I reckon we could do some data mining around that. Or the World Cup or the latest Meghan Markle documentary. Like there's no siloing around how do you recruit people or how do you try and sow chaos and confusion. And so the problem is those of us who are fighting it, again, for want of a better word, we sit, you know, I'm in a school of public health. Luckily, I'm in a school that allows me to think about Ukraine and to think about elections and to think about climate. But still, fundamentally, people really want to talk about COVID and cancer misinformation. Um, and so there, so far, we don't have any university centers that sit at the center of a university. We have lots of them in political science, you know. So just that is not helpful, not helpful at all. And even government agencies are not connected because you know, there are people thinking about election disinformation who then don't talk to the CDC and the FDA, who don't then talk to NOAA and the oceanic, oceanic people. Like, it's just crazy, but it's not surprising because that's it affects every wicked problem. So it's just kind of like the way that we go, but it's really unhelpful in this space. You would think that by now there would be some effort to integrate or at least convene people working in information silos across disciplines across domains, but is that, is that, is that, is that more a function of academia or is it a, um, really a, a funding of nonprofit institutions writ large? I think it's a mixture of things because there's really great civil society going on, uh, that gets funded. Then there's university departments, but of course, when you're a newish field and like money comes pouring in, yeah. you also get a lot of like pointy elbows and like, you know, yeah. people don't really want to be collaborative because you kind of want to make people think that you're the best, you know, so it's just, it's all those dynamics that are hard. But I think another thing I'll say is that, um, I mean, even the fact that we're having this conversation and using the misinformation word means that I will probably get attacked quite significantly. Like the word itself mm. has word itself. become so polarizing. And to your point about collaboration, there are real attacks on this idea that people would coordinate around this, which gets exactly to your point earlier, which is without a you know an agreed upon arbiter of truth without agreed upon who makes these decisions what is misinformation what should happen to information i mean we never as a society had a conversation about like let's let's chat about it you know i've done this before if i gave 10 people 10 examples and said a how would you define this and b what actions would you take about it i get 10 different answers like we as a society can't agree on this kind of content so kind of unsurprisingly you know, we're now five or six years in, there are people really angry about the idea that there are people trying to fight this because who am I and who gave me, you know, yeah. the medal to do? I mean, so I'm just, I think what's so interesting is there is a need for collaboration. There is a need for organizations working together. But the idea that academics would work with civil society who would potentially work with governments would, you know, and then platforms are in the mix. Like the truth is we also never came up with ethical guidelines. Like, uh, is it yeah. right that somebody in civil society lets, you know, the platforms know that they've seen something problematic? Like there wasn't transparency around that. Or yeah. what does it mean for the, you know, a federal agency to get advisement from an academic? Was there transparency around that? And what's that academic advising and who is that academic? So it it makes me deeply sad because in many ways we're at this moment of um, kind of paralysis. 
But I can also understand why it's happened because at speed, people moved trying to do the right thing. But quite rightly, there are people like, I wasn't around the table. Like who made up these rules and where was the transparency about those rules? And there was decisions taken about speech on platforms that got taken down or demoted or labeled. And I don't agree with that. So it's, historians are going to look back at this moment and it's a really, really interesting slash sad time because I just feel like we're, we don't quite know how to move forward around an issue that's just so, so important. That, that I can't tell you how helpful that explanation was for me because it just, uh, a few, a few puzzle pieces just clicked into place for me because before we had this conversation a couple of hours ago, I was, as one does, scrolling through Instagram and, and I came across a video of a journalist explaining that he and his colleagues had uh, uncovered this. You probably know the journalist. I won't name check, check him right now. Um, uh, what, what they're characterizing as a censorship industrial complex about precisely the coordination between nonprofit, academia, civil society, government institutions that you're talking about that, um, let's say, the I'm, I'm not putting words in his mouth, but the characterization is essentially users have not had informed consent about how we're doing this, right? How we're, and, and frankly, truth gathering, the identification of truth is hard. It takes a lot of work. It always has. And now with the proliferation of so much information on a second by second basis, it's even harder. And now I understand this claim of, while it sounds conspiratorial, <laughs> the censorship industrial complex is one way to describe what he's talking about as the collaboration between elite organizations to determine what should be allowed online and what shouldn't. And that should concern, I think, everybody, um, whether, whether, whether you agree with, you know, how, wherever, however you would label any given post, the idea that some group of people is going to decide this without the input or without the, you know, without transparency involved for everybody to know how we're going about this, I think is, is a big deal. And I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation because that just made a whole lot more sense to me. And I, and I think to be honest, a lot of that kind of work that's being described as that, and I'm certainly meant to be part of that complex just for full transparency, um, (laughs) is that, um, actually it was about policies set up by these platforms. So it wasn't that, any of us that were kind of like, hey, this is an issue. We're coming up with completely new stuff. It was like, hey, you say your policy doesn't allow people to say that masks don't work on YouTube. I found somebody who's doing this, just an FYI. Like that was literally the level of what was going on here. But I also, you know, I'd often be in these meetings, but like there's no users at these meetings. Like these state, multi-state, like there's no users. And I think there's really excellent work around ideas like citizen juries. Like what would it look like? Like you use Instagram. What would it mean if like twice a year you were pulled in to say, hey, can you just like let us know what you would do with these 10 examples? And the same happened with another 10 users. And you actually had to come to some kind of like jury decision about that. Like there are people saying, what does it look like if we really come up with content moderation decisions where people are part of that process? And that like that participatory aspect, I really think is the only way that we go. I mean, I can see why platforms didn't want to start there, but like look at spaces like Reddit. It's not perfect, but it has community moderators who believe very deeply that they want their subreddit to be a place where people want to come. And that's why there are some subreddits that are just really extraordinary places on the internet because they're like well-tended gardens, to use that terrible analogy. But like, so what does that look like? Um, And Parler famously uh, did have citizen juries. It's just 
many users on Parler came from a very similar perspective politically. So you could I kind of argue that that wasn't the best system. Um, but I think for many of the very large platforms, you could do something like that. And it really would be interesting because I think it would also make people think when they post like, oh, if I was on the other side of this, is this useful for society? Because fundamentally, that we're never going to get to a point legally, like this is good speech or this is bad speech. But when you go into a restaurant, you know, you know the kind of speech that is acceptable and the kind of the speech that isn't. And as a society, yeah. we've kind of figured out that. And it changes over it generations. It also kind of depends on the restaurant. Yeah, depends on the Exactly. Really, really good point. But like that we kind of come to that agreement and there are norms around it. Like we haven't had that with social media. It's like, you know, so for example, Pinterest famously in 2019 said, people come to Pinterest to plan their weddings and their kitchens. They do not come to Pinterest to plan whether or not they should vaccinate their child. For that reason, we're not going to allow any vaccine debate on Pinterest. Not because we're censoring it, just this isn't a place where it should happen. And I think about that all the time. We're like, as a society, we should just be like, should, is this okay? Is, is this okay to have lots of people on YouTube talking conspiratorially? Well, let's have a conversation about it. And we just haven't. And I wish we'd had it earlier because now it feels so polarized that I don't know how we would have that conversation. So, Well, I want to get a little bit more into the community-led um, uh, solutions in a bit. But first, we talked about whack-a-mole a little bit earlier. Uh, and our current approach to polluter information is, is like that game, that carnival game. Um, it's some arbiter of what is and isn't misinformation deciding on a post-by-post -post basis. Can you lay out what a better way of understanding this might be? You touched on narratives a little bit earlier, um, but and thinking about information at atoms, right? Um, how do you think about the tapestry of information now? If you don't, if you don't think about it as a you know uh, a whack-a-mole problem. How do you see, give us a, as rich a description as you can, if you were to visualize what this thing looks like. A, I love the word tapestry, so I'm going to have to steal it. Um, but I'm, I'm going to give an example of some research that my team did back in kind of November 2020, when we were fascinated. We knew the vaccines were coming online and we kind of wanted to get a sense of how people thought about it. Now, for all the reasons that we've just discussed, defining misinformation is exceptionally difficult. So we couldn't go onto sites like, oh, I'm going to pull this piece of misinformation down. So instead, the team came up with a whole like slew of different keywords that had anything to do with vaccination in English, French, and Spanish. And they pulled down over 20 million posts from Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So it was just people talking about vaccinations. It wasn't misinformation. It was just how did people talk about vaccinations? And then they, like, you know, they basically took the most engaged posts so they didn't kill themselves. They couldn't look at 20 million, et cetera, et cetera. And then they coded. They basically went through all of these in pairs to make sure that it was reliable to say, what are the different ways people are talking about vaccines? And there was, we came up with six different ways people were talking about vaccines. Things like safety, efficacy, and necessity, um, morality, and religion. Um, economic development, um, and liberty and freedom. And another one was conspiracy theory. For those of you listening who are American, it might not surprise you that the number one theme in American English was liberty and freedom. It had People were not saying, do I need this vaccine? Is this vaccine safe? How do I get this vaccine? How is this vaccine created? No, that wasn't the number one way people were talking about it. It was Am I going to be forced to put something in my arm that I don't want to? Who's got the right to do that? Do I have to have a vaccine passport if I want to go to the shopping mall? It was, that was the discussion. In Spanish, it was morality and religion. 
And in French, it was like economic motives, very French. Um, but it was a reminder of like these narratives of the way people were making sense. They were coming into these conversations with a particular way of seeing this. And when we spoke to the CDC about this, like somebody kind of like said, well, you know what, like as the CDC, we couldn't talk about vaccines in any of those narratives other than safety, efficacy, and necessity. Like that, the CDC talks at that level because that's what they do. But there was another five ways of talking about vaccines that they were like, well, that's not our job. And that this is not a criticism of the CDC. That's, this is just a, a, a reminder of how we need to understand these, narrative, these narratives and the way they frame people's ways of seeing to understand and to respond rather than playing whack-a-mole of like, here's a YouTube video that says this, we should take it down. Here's a tweet that says that, we should label it. Like, we're not getting at the way that people are seeing. And so conspiracy theories are these grand narratives, you know, whether it's many, many people in many lower middle income countries have this idea that, you know, America and Western Europe is trying to depopulate them. That's the grand narrative. So every time a new vaccine comes on board, it, the, the conspiracy is this is an excuse to depopulate our nation. Now, it's got nothing to do with facts. It's a way of seeing that has been part of the mentality for a number of years. So without understanding those narratives, we're not going to get anywhere. But we don't have good ways of, of basically doing this kind of research, measuring it, automating the process of understanding narratives. So without that technology, we like find individual posts and then go, oh, let's do something with that individual post. I'm going to ask you about AI at the end, but it seems to me that that might be a promising technology on the plus side of AI. But um, let's talk about scapegoats for a minute. There have been some clear and easy scapegoats for information pollution, foreign troll farms, for example, um, and edgelords on 4chan, um, not to mention the Russians. Uh, can you talk about the role that these different groups play in spreading information pollution, how much of it, uh, you know, they actually are responsible for compared to regular people? So this is a reason why the differences between dis and misinformation are actually quite useful for this conversation, which okay. is everybody's obsessed with foreign interference or 18-year-old boys on 4chan in their basement. It makes for great news headlines. It makes for a lot of funding opportunities, all of those things. But the truth is that the number of people who are doing that is relatively small. If we, if we didn't spread it, we wouldn't really have the problem. The problem is those disinformation agents are really, really good at manipulating our emotions. Um, and actually, if people haven't watched it, there's this great documentary from 2018 from the New York Times called Operation Infection. And they have this footage of KGB spies um, from the 1980s. And one of them kind of famously says, yeah, it's like drops of water on a rock. Any individual drop of water can't cause any harm. But over time, many, many, many drops of water can splinter that rock into thousands of pieces. And that's what we're trying to do with the US. And he's saying that in, in like 40 years ago. And you're like, oh yeah, I think you kind of achieved that. And so ultimately it was never about persuading anybody about any particular narrative. It was about sowing confusion and chaos. And that is what has been so effective. But every time I talk about these atoms of content, it's like those drops of water like, is that YouTube video good or bad? Should we take it down or not? Should we lab label that tweet? But we're not looking at the longitudinal impact of a lot of these examples that if we sat here, if you sat, you and I sat here for three hours and went through 100 examples, probably most of them we'd say, oh, it doesn't really hit the policy threshold. I feel pretty uncomfortable about doing anything with that. First Amendment, et cetera, et cetera. But what does that mean when people for multiple years 
see this kind of content that's like low level anti-Semitism, low level misogyny, low level, you know, and conspiratorial thinking. And I, I, that's what worries me so much is the, the focus of the atoms of content in the now means that we're not seeing it narratives over time. And that for me is the bit that really worries me. I'm I'm glad you brought up that documentary series because I watched it after you recommended it. We talked on the phone. We talked on our, our our Zoom call, and I we should put a link to that in the show notes today for everybody who's really curious because it's not only it's it's fascinating, it's very informative, but it's also very watchable too, and so prescient. Um, so, yeah, uh, really really brilliant piece. It was um, remind me, remind me of the title, Operation Infection. Operation Infection. The other thing I'd say is that. It's much easier for researchers, academics, government officials, and others to think about this external threat, like the bad guys and what they're doing on the platforms, than it is to say, how have we failed as the people who are in so-called trusted institutions who have a responsibility to inform communities when they have information needs? How have we failed them and how have we created these vacuums and these voids that have been filled by conspiracy theorists? So, so much of our work is around what are the questions that people are asking? Completely valid questions by people who are just confused. They're not conspiracy theorists. They just want to know. They just want to know, like, I've heard about this thing, myocarditis. I've got a nine-year-old son. Is it safe for me to vaccinate him? I don't know. Let me go online. I'm not finding any information from trusted um, sources, but I am finding people linking out to what looks like scientific evidence that suggests that myocarditis is a huge risk. Like the failings of those of us, and I say us because I mean researchers, journalists, government agencies, we have failed people and our failings, we have failed to communicate effectively in a networked information environment in, 20, in the 2020s. We have failed to understand what the technology demanded of us because we carried on communicating like it was 1996. And we've created these voids and vacuums that have been filled by conspiracy theorists who are much better at SEO, search engine optimization, than many government agencies. They're much better at creating visually compelling, engaging, emotional content than we are. And so one of my arguments in all of this is like, I'm not saying to dismiss those external factors. Yes, it's a problem, but proportionately, What's the bits that we can control? Because I'm going to say 20% of the population is always going to believe pretty conspiratorial content, always has, always will. And trying to get them out of the rabbit hole is going to take a lot of resourcing and it's a, a big program. I do think there's 80% of the country that's like, I just want an answer to a question from a trusted source and I can't find it. That stuff we can really control and do something about. But instead, it's better to have a headline about the 18-year-old boys on Discord or the Russian trolls on Facebook because it takes away any responsibility that we need to have and to acknowledge in terms of our own roles. It also seems to me that having that as the main headline makes it easier or at least provides a lot of cover for trying to purge misinformation or the takedowns uh, to, make, to make that case a lot easier. If you believe it has come from a nefarious foreign actor, then it's a whole lot easier to justify. Well, let's just get rid of anything. Any, any speech that seems to align with what we know the Russians are doing, even if it's voluntary expressive speech from an American citizen online. And that, uh, that seems particularly problematic. We'll use that word again to me. But the other thing you noted about communicating as if it were 1996, um, can you explain the diff? Because this, I found this very useful in your piece, uh, which is to be published, which we'll put a, uh, a link in the show notes to as well. Um, the, if we, we, the institutions, media, government, nonprofit, academia, 
uh, carry on communicating as if it's 1996. What is the assumption? What is that modality? How, how would you describe that compared to how we communicate now? Because it's, it's as if it's received wisdom that is being distributed uh, on a one-to-many basis and, and uh, full stop goodbye. Well, we're going to go home and have lunch now, right? Like it's, it's a, it's a simple broadcast of communication that we expect people to, um, simply absorb, believe and act accordingly. And, and that's not where we are now. Is that how, how would you characterize the, the difference in those dynamics? So I'll go back a little bit to the early 2000s when I was working with the BBC. And at that time, the people that were really experimenting with Web 2.0, who were really excited about the feedback loops, what was possible, really working with the audience, creating participatory spaces, there was all this magic happening. Then about 2010, the kind of middle managers got onto Twitter and Facebook and went, ah, so what you're telling me is I can just post my article to Facebook and more people are going to read it. What you're telling me is I can just say, tune in at 11 and people are going to tune in at 11. I can do that on Twitter. And so basically all this magic disappeared because the middle managers just took their old broadcast ways and dumped them on social media saying, look at us, we're being really technologically forward. But they actually weren't when you look at the dynamics. And that happens still now. It's that many big institutions that use social media are not using it in the way that it's designed. But Again, people who are spending time in communities, online communities, who really are, you know, we could label them disinformation, but they are communities who believe certain things. They are, they feel part of something. They feel they have a sense of agency. They're told to share their tips. They're told to do their own research. They feel like it doesn't matter where they are in the hierarchy that they're taken seriously. So the horrible irony in all of that is that the ecosystem that like many listeners and us, we live in, it's still top-down, linear and hierarchical. Somebody with letters after their name is probably going to stand at a podium. Maybe like the news organizations are going to cover it. And then the idea is that then we passively read it and go, oh yes. But there's no participatory. Like I might post a comment on Facebook, but I don't think anybody's actually reading it. Whereas the, the, the kind of communities I spend time in they're really welcoming, they're really inclusive, and most importantly, they feel heard when they speak. Now, until we, and I keep, I hate them and us, but the yeah, p- people yeah. who run academic institutions, all the things, unless there's a recognition that we truly have to listen and make people feel heard and make them feel part of all of these, like exactly going back to the content moderation discussion. We have, we have continued to be really elitist in a way that has impacted our communication. And we saw that during the pandemic when the person with the most less stuff, the name in front of a podium said, trust me, wear a mask. Oh, trust me, yeah. don't wear a mask. Oh, trust me, it's 11 days. Oh, trust me, it's four days. Like you can't keep saying trust me and that was only going to last so long. And so I think the dynamics of our top-down linear information environment, very hierarchical, has actually come to bite us on the bum <laughs> because it, yeah, there's yeah. no room there. There was no room for there to be any kind of actual feedback with audiences, yeah. um, no humility. It's funny as you're talking about uh, the, let's call it the evolution of, of how organizations use social media. I immediately started thinking about campaigns and how so far behind they were because you'd have candidates and campaign managers and consultants who just thought about it as, a, as an extension of broadcast media and didn't really appreciate it for the tool that it was. And, um, and, uh, which is what led to, um, you know, later on uh, starting a social media front, digital media firm to help campaigns do this better. 
Because um, essentially it's movements. So if you're in the anti-vax space or QAnon, they understand movement dynamics. But again, journalists, researchers, academics were like, oh, movements, you say? That makes us feel very nervous. Like, so there's so much of this, which <laughs> yeah. is like culturally how you think yeah. about people and your relationship to people. Newsrooms, as much as they all got audience editors, like you had the person who ran that job and they really understood it. But the rest of the newsrooms were like, what are my metrics today, Bob? Right. Like that, that was the right. how they saw audience. It wasn't about... Yeah. What are we getting from the audience? How can we respond to audience needs? What questions do our audience have? I'd love to answer them. Like none of that. Yep. And so that's, that's yeah. kind of where I think we're where we are now. And I think part of that comes from a need to control the information to make sure they don't lose uh, their grip on whatever narrative it is. Now, if you're in a PR role, your interest is making sure that whatever organization, candidate, brand you're representing, you have control as much as you can of the narrative of the information. And so taking questions is very risky, right? Uh, and so I don't know what, I, I don't, I suppose something similar would be happening in a newsroom, but there's some questions you just can't answer, right? Because the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> and and no reporter, no no news institution wants to say, we don't know. No, 100%. 100%. And, and that's one of the big lessons coming out of the pandemic is to say to people, we should have been much more honest about what we didn't know. I mean, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic hearing somebody use this great analogy of it's during like, during a wildfire, you're, you tune in to the kind of fire captain saying, right now the fire is here. Tomorrow the fire could be there, there or there. I can't tell you where the fire is going to be tomorrow, but trust me because I'm in the line of fire, so is my family. I'm going to do everything I possibly can and I'm going to tell you what I know and sometimes I'm going to get it wrong, but trust me. Like, that I don't know. And I would be hooked on that person if they were saying that. <laughs> I, 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 I would never turn the TV off. But I mean, there are, we do see examples of this. I mean, whatever your politics and whatever you think about AOC, like when she gets onto Instagram and says, ask me questions about the democratic process. I'm going to tell you what I can. Yep. Sometimes I can't tell you. I'm going to, you know, drink as I do. Like that kind of like, to use that terrible phrase, authentic, that like, tell, yeah. tell me what your questions are and let me try and answer them. And I'm going to be honest about what I can and honest about what I can't. Like that kind of communication style. Like I think about that in public health. Like what would it look like if we had multiple figures out there on TikTok and Instagram and others saying, tell me what you're scared about. You know, I'm going to tell you what I'm scared about. And I'm going to tell you what, you know, what would it look like if our communication ecosystem wasn't, didn't have to go through multiple lines of clearance, didn't, wasn't always three days behind because of the multiple days of clearance. Like, of course there's going to be mistakes, but I just would, I, like, we, we, like you talk about control. You can't do control in the way you used to be able to do it in 1986. You just can't. So we've just got to evolve and adapt the way we do communication. And there's trade-offs. We're going to lose some control, but we're going to gain some other things. And I just think there's such fear for understandable reasons, but we're really failing because of that. Okay. I want to get to community-led resilience. Um, and I want to understand what role communities have in helping people sift through all the information available to them. And what do we even mean by the word community? Maybe we should start with a definition there. What are we talking about? Um, that's a great question. And if you go through the academic literature, there is lots of it and it doesn't all come to the same conclusions. But fundamentally, communities is like who you feel an affinity with. So it might be your actual geographic community. It might be a community of people connected to you because of your faith or your um, nationality or ethnicity. It might be the fact that you have an online communities of other people who love the same game as you and you get on at seven o'clock at night and you play the same game. But it's that affinity piece. And the reason that community is so important in all of this is to get back to the T word around trust is that 
Trust is people you think have your best interests at heart. So the reason that some people really trust MSNBC and other people really trust Fox isn't about the content. It's the relationship between the person and the content and that you believe that the people creating that content have your best interests at heart. So in an era where there is less trust in these big institutions, what we see is that people are turning to one another, that actually trust is going up in your fellow um, co-workers, in people that you share living quarters with, your family, you know, we've all got family members, but trust is actually becoming much, much, much more local. And so when we think about effectively communicating now, the idea that we just need the right ad on the right side of the right bus that's going to do this, it goes back to the broadcast model. And it kind of goes back to the flawed hypodermic communication, like the hypodermic needle model of communication, which was all the rage in the 1950s, post-World War II, like, oh my God, Nazi propaganda. And then everybody realized in the 1960s and 70s, oh no, turns out audiences are much more nuanced and sophisticated. And we moved into the active audience framework of some people receive a message in a certain way, some people negotiate it, and some people have an oppositional view. But there was a much more nuanced understanding. But now when I hear people talk about, we just need Kim Kardashian on TikTok to tell us to get vaccinated. Like that goes back to the hypodermic needle model. Anyway, the reason we need communities is because the person you trust is probably going to be somebody that looks like you or sounds like you or somebody you spend a lot of time with. So the idea here is how do we support communities to say, you are much better place to have these conversations with people. What support do you need so that you can have those conversations? And so there's these amazing examples like Stephen Thomas at the University of Maryland, who went out and trained a ton of black barbershop owners to say, here's how you have conversations with your clients about health whether it's getting vaccinated or whether it's about their use of cholesterol medication, any, anything, you, the, the barber that sits there for three hours and has conversations and they are trusted. So what does it look like to make them the trusted messenger? What does it look like for the CDC to create toolkits that essentially a community takes off the CDC logo, changes the faces and changes the messaging to use culturally appropriate and relevant language and, you know, analogies what does that look like? That's how we do this. That's how we improve the communication. It's how we ensure that communities have their information needs met, but it has to be at the community level. Now, people want to do that because it's expensive and time consuming, but we've just wasted seven years saying, mm, can't we just tweak the Facebook algorithm? Can't we just change section 230? Like, whatever, that can carry on. We can carry on having that conversation. But if we waste any more time not doing this community-based work, we're just wasting more years of what we know works. And that has to be the way forward as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I can hear the shrieks of bureaucrats at the CDC all the way from here where we're recording. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the, idea, the idea of allowing people to take messages and do whatever they want with them and we intend for that. Whew, man, that's a, that's a tough sell to a very old and... Uh, and established model with a lot of inertia. But here's what I'm going to say. It's already happening. It's, you spend time with public health communication workers anywhere in the country that work with different communities. And I'm like, I can't use that toolkit. Now, that's not a criticism of the CDC because you simply cannot have one central message. You just can't in a country as diverse and wonderful as it is. And I just wish we could have recognized that and also recognized that the technology exists for us to do that. It goes back to Web 2.0 came along and we went, oh, so we're just going to broadcast, right? No, like the, <laughs> the technology exists for us to do 
like this is what Web 2.0 is. It's about mashups. It's about taking pieces, repurposing up. That's why TikTok is as magic as it is. But it is scary. You're absolutely right. But it's about control and it's about letting go. It sounds, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited at your description of this. I think it would be fascinating, fascinating, and, and it would speed things up incredibly. Um, I want to ask you a, a, a related question, I suppose. Earlier, you talked about how social media companies haven't really uh, included users in conversation about content moderation. And I wonder, how is that related to how these platforms view their users in the first place, which, as we know, is as a product for advertisers. There's this um, now cliche saying about if, you know, if it's free, you're not the, you're not the customer, right? And, and, uh, and I, I, wonder, I wonder how that plays into their decisions and, um, you know, see, seeing users as a product for advertisers, which we, we can do chapter and verse on the problem with ad-driven media models, but um, which is, Man, I don't even want to open that box with you. I think we'd be here for for, for quite a while. Um, and again, how do you how do you see the relationship they have with users as influencing their decisions about content moderation? I think they see their users as a line on a graph that's a hockey stick. I mean, when we go back to those early days of social media, they just I think they just couldn't believe their eyes when they saw this incredible scale and global scale. But what that meant was it was like scale was everything. And so these little people disappeared and just became dots or became a number that was just, you know, tick, 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 tick in a Menlo Park office. So I think if you'd sat down with them and talked about these ideas, they would have been like, you know, I'm not against that. Like, you know, as you know, if you spent any time with platform people, they're all lovely and they all want to do the right thing. But I think if you'd said that, they immediately just would have said, well, how on earth do we scale that? And it's a, it's a very valid question. But as we know, the speed at which they scaled is why we're in this mess. Like if they'd had friction built in to say, you can only launch in a country if you've done a series of focus groups and you've worked with a number of users in that country to really understand what's going on in that country. If that had been the way that we allowed them to move from country to country, then again, we wouldn't be in this mess. But the minute that scale was everything and you had you know everybody in Ethiopia as well as everybody in Colombia and everybody in you know, Indonesia, the idea that you would end up asking users to be part of the content moderation process was just too much. And so I, you know, from a practical perspective, I understand it. You know, again, my deep frustration in so much of this is those of us who think about these issues deeply, we didn't put enough pressure on those platforms in 2008, 2009. We were all so excited, tech journalists included, about, we, we you know, the Kool-Aid about connecting communities, you know, the the uprisings across North Africa, that was everything that we wanted it to be. But it's really difficult to recognize how we just did so, so little to create any kind of oversight at the time um, because they weren't going to stop and have these kind of conversations. Like if we'd had a public service version of this, what would that have looked like? They would have had to have been users at the core of its design, but it was never designed in that way. It was designed to make a lot of money very quickly and it was very successful in that. And But stopping to ask users there was no money in that. And that's, you know, it, it is what it is. They, they are companies and they are very successful companies. I think it's hard to tap them on the wrist now when we didn't do what we should have done when they were much, much, much smaller. And this wouldn't have been as impossible as it is now. You're, 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 you're knocking on the door of a room full of uh, points that um, Professor Mehran Sahami, are you familiar with him at Stanford? He's been on the show a couple of times. I think he's wonderful, but uh, this is, this is, exactly what he talks about in his book 
system error, how big tech went wrong and how we can fix it with his co-authors, Jeremy Weinstein and Rob Reich, have been wonderful. But one of the things they talk about is uh, as as tech grew, they failed to integrate roles like ethicists into the engineering uh, process. And so you have um, essentially product managers and engineers, coders who have zero training in philosophy or ethics or any of the things that could have steered us in a better, healthier direction. Um, they have, they have, they're completely unequipped to, um, to even be thinking about these questions when they're solely optimizing for one purpose. And, um, uh, it's obviously too late now to, to fix that problem. Um, the systems are built, the damage is done. The exact same thing is happening now with generative AI. Yeah. Which is is allowing, allowing the market to do its work, which in a marketplace you have to be first and you have to be best. And so it's very difficult to watch the exact same dynamics play out, exact same dynamics, but with technology that is significantly, significantly more harmful, potentially harmful than what we're talking about here. So that is really hard that we didn't, that we didn't learn the lessons of, you know, again, was Facebook going to stop and do um, citizen juries when they were trying to go up against Instagram before they bought them and you know, fighting Google and, you know, like, of course not, because it was a market that was saying you have to be as frictionless as possible and you have to scale and da, da, da. So it's those dynamics. And so the deep frustration is as much as we've talked about this on podcasts and other things, we're at the exact same moment. And, you know, there was the letter recently, which was saying we need to pause, which is this, which is you can't, you simply cannot do all of this at this speed without knowing fully that we're going to have some horrific unintended consequences and what sit on a podcast in five years. And we're like, yeah, we should have seen this coming in 2023. Like we can't do it again. Yeah. This letter you're referring to for our listeners, I think is one we may have mentioned on a roundup recently. If not, we've definitely discussed it in our editorial meetings, but it's a uh, a letter essentially causing for a pause of sorts on the development of AI signed by some of the most accomplished and serious people in the tech community. Specifically, Elon Musk is one of the most uh, noteworthy signatories. Um, and there's been this real uptick in discussions about AI in the last few months, incredibly just in the last few weeks, because the rate at which this stuff is learning and accelerating is just, it, it really is unfathomable. Every couple of hours, there's a brand new thing that is completely unprecedented. This is probably the best place to close because it's kind of a cliffhanger, but I'd just like your general thoughts on how you see its impact on the information landscape. What are the things that you're going to be watching as the role of AI in society becomes more clear? I love the fact that this is the and finally, when really we could just talk about this for the five like next episodes. But I mean, I've got, uh, I did, um, my, one of my life highlights, I think, was a couple of years ago when somebody at the New York Times was like, would you do us a video op-ed about deep fakes, but we want to open it by turning you into a Dell. So not only did I like basically get an op-ed in the New York Times, I was Adele. Um, anyway, it was fascinating. And uh, I mean, you should put that in the show notes, but it's fascinating because it cost the New York Times, I think $500 to turn me into Adele. Um, and the point I was making is that we're actually, this was back in 2019, is that, you know, we're so worried about deep fakes, but actually the bigger concern is that it will allow liars, what's called the liar's dividend, it will allow, allow liars to say, oh, that didn't happen. That must be a deep fake. So I basically make this three minute video saying, can we just calm down? Because all of this hyperbole is actually more of a threat than the 
technology itself. Now, AI generative media has really increased at such a speed, even you know, in the last three or four years. But I will say I'm less worried about the big moments, you know, the Trump arrest photos that came out, you know, yep. the, there wasn't the like, or Macron yeah. picking up litter or, you know, the Pope in a puffer jacket. You know, some of them were serious, some of them were funny, but it wasn't as if people were fooled. Because I actually think the conversations right. we've had over the last six years have really made more people more skeptical. And so people were Googling immediately, has Trump been arrested? Or no. Well, clearly that video is a, that photo is a fake. Right. What I am more worried about is the less high profile stuff of, for example, personalized robocalls. Like the things that we're going to see less of, like the behind the scenes, how do you use deeply personalized creation of content? I'm very worried about audio messages because our eyes are pretty bad, but our ears are terrible. Like it's yeah. that stuff that I'm like, there's going to be something that I don't think is going to be high profile at the time, but I think has the capacity to really shift elections, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I sort of wish that we could shape the conversation to say, we've really got to think about those malign um, actions and think about yeah. ultimately future-proof some of the things that right now I think we're kind of moving with a kind of a naivety about this or an yeah. emphasis on certain types and not thinking about other stuff. So it really is kind of like threat scenario planning about, okay, let's, let's put our worst case scenario hats on and I don't think we're doing enough of that as a society. I mean, I would hope the platforms are doing it. I'm pretty sure they're not. I mean, one small thing, like I remember back in 2016, somebody I knew was working for Facebook and she kind of was like, hey, how would you feel about live video? This was when they were thinking about Facebook Live. And I was like, well, you know, of course it's going to be live streaming terrorist incidents, suicides, bullying. She's like, yeah, I know, because we've both been journalists, but everybody inside Facebook just thinks it's going to be great for live streaming one-year-old birthday parties to grandma. And I was like, if I could take all the platform people and put them in a pub with journalists, we wouldn't be in this mess because journalists are always going to go to the worst, darkest places. Right. So I kind of feel that with AI is that we need to put some journalists in Silicon Valley to be like, hey, dude, let me just tell you, this is how it's going to go down and it's going to get bad really quickly. And here are all the ways yeah. that elections can be manipulated and all the ways that people will stop getting vaccinated. And all, you know, So I don't want to be a Debbie Downer about it, <laughs> but I do think for yeah. all of the amazing things it's going to do, and it really is going to do amazing things, we just have not really deeply thought about the threats beyond the like, mm, there's going to be a photo of Trump being arrested. What well, turned out people weren't shocked by that. So I just want more of that. On that cheerful note, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> Available uh, for any dinner party. <laughs> we've got lots of goodies in the show notes today, uh, including the article that's, uh, that's about to be published that you wrote. The um, the New York Times documentary series, um, a handful of things. I th I think um, our listeners should go check out all of this stuff. Is there anything else you want to leave people with before we go? Where can they find you on the internet if they want to follow your work? Um, any other resources you want to point to? So I, I think one thing I'm excited about is the work at our lab has really shifted from finding bad stuff on the internet because it turns out if you go looking, you'll always find it to being deeply rooted in understanding community information needs. And right now we're doing this work in Rhode Island as a pilot to really scale nationally. So I would just say anybody who's really interested in trying to, trying to return to communities, like that's the work that I really feel passionately about. And so, yeah, you know, the Information Futures Lab, we'll put it in the show notes. But yeah, I think we're going to do some pretty exciting stuff in the next few years, which feels about, it's all about connecting 
with communities to ensure that their information needs are met. And that's flipping the way that we've thought about this problem for a long time. Um, but I'm really excited by that work. Beautiful. Well, I look forward to following. And um, until next time, I think we've got lots of conversations to have. Thank you, Claire. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.